So tonight we're going to try to redress, readdress the chapter on the image of God in man. If you had any questions, concerns, discussions that you would like to, or clarifications you'd like to have made, um, I asked you last week to come prepare for any of those that, or things that, uh, applications of it that, uh, may have been missed. That's a really hard thing to put on people is to find what's missing. Um, addressing what's there is easier. Finding, well, what about this is a lot harder, isn't it? Requires you to go outside of the content that is there, and now you're going into God's Word and saying, well, what about, what about, what about? Have we addressed these other passages or these other principles? So do we have anything of that nature from this previous chapter? I don't want to get into the next chapter uh, until we've had an opportunity to really engage that if you have any questions. Several elements will be in, brought back up later on, um, including in this chapter we're getting ready to get into when we get toward the end of it. Um, we have to, but if we don't establish this really well, then we're going to have struggles later on. Anything on the nature of man? Knowledge. Yes. How How do you willfully forget? Because that's what he really has to do, is willfully forget. That is, he chooses not to know. And that process is unmistakable. It's unmistakable that he emptied himself. uh, And there's not just one thing he didn't know. There were some things he did know about people, right? He knew it was in their hearts. He knew who he could trust, who he couldn't trust. Um, and I would contend that that is related predominantly to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. Um, how can we willfully... The, the premise of willful forgetfulness is really important because God has to forget your sin. And so it's really a precious thing and we're going to really study it when we get to the chapter on holiness. How does a holy, holy God allow us into his presence? And Isaiah understood that that's a violation of his holiness for us to be in his presence. And so there has to be a, a purification. Um, but that purification, does it cause him to forget? Um, well, it says he separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so when he looks at you, he no longer sees sin. He is, well, how can he do that? How can he not see our sin? Well, it's the same mechanism by which Christ can become man and not know um, what he knew prior to that. And that willful forgetfulness um, is, a, is an exercise of self-sovereignty that is beyond, really, our capacity. Okay? And that's what infinite sovereignty looks like. If I have infinite control on my brain, okay, I can control what I remember, what I don't. If I have, we often talk about, well, I wish I had perfect recall, right? Perfect recall means I wish I could bring forward everything I've learned all my life, all the verses, everything I've read all my life, and I can access it with just, you know, Google search in my brain, and I can have instant recall. Um, the problem with instant recall is there's a lot of things your brain has chosen not to remember that are precious. It's precious that you don't remember them. One of my biggest arguments and concerns with a lot of psycho- psychology and psychiatry is they are constantly trying to bring out trauma from your past, especially when they deal with children and even with adults. But, uh, uh, and and you'll see these people just break down and 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 it crushes them uh, when they bring forward these memories start coming forward where they use and they use various techniques to do that because the brain has a capacity to since you're not mature enough to deal with that trauma to um, forget it uh, and then you'll have some uh, thing trigger it later on in your life. And I believe we should trust God for those things to happen when we're mature enough to address them. So the capacity to control your mind, what it remembers and, and what it does remember, is probably much greater than we think. 
Um, but God has a perfect capacity, all right? He has perfect self-sovereignty. He has perfect control over his own knowledge and, uh, and over everything about himself, over every attribute that he has. He has perfect control over it. This is the finest example of sovereignty that there is. If you want to say, I want to explore the depth and breadth and width of God's sovereignty, well, you don't study Calvinism because their sovereign God, their God is, their, their sovereignty is their God, and he is necessarily weak um, because they study God's sovereignty by controlling events and controlling people and, and things like that, and that really isn't that impressive. It's when he controls himself to the degree that he does that is impressive. So we're really, this whole study is really, I could replace the word humility with sovereignty. But applying sovereignty to self, that is God saying I control myself, because that's really what we're talking about, that we are um, uh, being able to have that level of control over ourselves. We often think we have a level of control over our bodily functions, and we call some uh, that we don't, we have some bodily functions we have less control over, right? So we breathe and our heart beats. Uh, can you slow down your heartbeat? Sure, you can. Can you accelerate it? Absolutely. Um, you don't want to stop it because bad things start happening there when you stop it completely. Um, but you have some control even over those things that um, we, we, we say you don't. Uh, so we think of self-control, we usually think about our, our bodies and we think about our desires, our urges, uh, that, well, I'm going to control myself and I'm not going to eat that stuff because I'm on a diet and so I'm going to exercise self-control. And so that's really in the area of, it's a physical area, but it's really in the area of urges and things like that. And I think we don't realize the extent of what we have control over in our in our bodies and in our minds. And that's why uh, pastors like Philippians say, you know, you need to control your mind. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. Meditate on these things. All through the book of Philippians, it's, it's have control of your mind. And what does the enemy do? What does the enemy want you to do with your mind? The evil one. What does he want you to do with your mind? Empty your mind. Every, every false religion filled with spiritism, um, whether it's uh, uh, true spiritism or whether it's the, the, the meditative, transcendental meditation, things like that, all of these, and, and a lot of your Eastern stuff coming out of Japan, China, Korea, all of those um, that is associated usually with martial arts is empty your mind. Empty your mind. And when I am confronted by anybody asking me to empty my mind, to think on nothing, I immediately identify them as an evil person. Does the Bible ever tell you to do that? Um, no, it tells you to keep your mind meditated on good things. You have control of your mind, and I think you have more control over it to forget the things you need and want to forget. There are certain people's names that I, I can see their face in my brain when I want to access it, but their name is far from me, okay? Um, and I can sit there and go, oh, you know, what's his name? You know, what's, what's his name? What's his name? And my wife is looking at you mean my old boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, what's his name? I don't know. What is, what, what is that guy's name? I can't ever remember. Uh, I just willfully forget. I, I don't want to remember. And you have the capacity to do that. Um, you don't think you do. Um, and the evil one wants to bring things to your mind that bring guilt, right? And so, you know, people are going to come and remind you, oh, you did this, you did this, you did this. Well, that's all into the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's why the Bible tells us you should be meditating, setting your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so you do have a control. The more you direct your mind towards godly things, uh, the, I believe the more you're going to not just not think on these other things anymore, but you're really going to grow out of touch with those and the thoughts that are there and the associations. But God has perfect self-sovereignty. 
perfect self-control. So it doesn't diminish him to do this. It, it suddenly lifts him to a level of, wow, he can become a baby and not talk. Okay? There's no evidence that he was anything other than a normal child um, in terms of his development. He had to develop wisdom, stature, and favor with God and men. He had to develop it like a normal child did, but without sin. So that makes him abnormal, but in some normality. That help? Yes, and we're going to discuss that in this next chapter, that we fill ourselves up with him, and that is a command to us. It's not a command of the Holy Spirit to fill us. It's a command for us to be filled, and that, that we are um, an active participant with the Holy Spirit in that process. Okay, we're going to be revisiting the Constitution of Man, particularly several times. We're going to be really revisiting God the Father and, uh, and His relationship with created order in the next chapter. This chapter, I think, is going to be that we have before us, and if you don't have a copy, there's some on the table back there, um, is, should be relatively quick and um, shouldn't be too many surprises here for you. But realize that this is a huge statement that is going contrary to what most of Christianity is teaching today that are teaching irresistible grace. The irresistible work of the Holy Spirit essentially says in the Calvinistic model that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, uh, regenerate you by God's command, and as a regenerated person then you will not you might, but you will, not that you can, but you will get saved. You will accept Christ your Savior in that new body, in that new person that you have been regenerated. You, and thus, you are born again, and then you trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the order, and that work of the Holy Spirit is uh, unilateral. That is, you don't have to invite it, uh, you don't have any say over it, it's already been predetermined by God in eternity past who will get it and who will not. And therefore, it is completely irresistible. And so recognize, please, that while this chapter may seem very light, and to me it's a very easy chapter to write uh, and to deal with because it's much like Jesus Christ and the Bible states it outright that these things can be done. Just like with Jesus, it says outright that he emptied himself. It says outright that you know he... Had the he became fully man, and so um, we come to this now. And with regard to the Holy Spirit, and we are confronted with uh, His work in the New Testament, particularly. Uh, I don't really address the Old Testament Spirit extensively, really hardly at all in this chapter. Um, it's really beyond outside of our experience. Uh, obviously, it was it was transient, came and went. Um, and, but uh, certainly the principles we're talking about apply to him. Um, was the Spirit active prior to Acts chapter 2? Yes, he was. Obviously, in Genesis, God says, my Spirit will not always strive with men, and that is that at some point he will disengage his Spirit. And we find that related later on, that the Spirit will be taken out, taken away, uh, as we call him the restrainer, that he will be taken out of the way until that time comes, and uh, we would associate that the rapture, um, that his ministry continues. So I really haven't dealt with in this chapter specifically, because I'm really not dealing with the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'm really talking about his humility, and therefore I'm not really referencing those other times where he is not present uh, on the earth in the manner in which we see during the church age. Um, and, and I really don't see how we can bring Old Testament saints into a right relationship with God without the exact same expectation that the Spirit regenerates them 
um, but then we see the Spirit leaving them, and I don't know how uh, that can be dealt with by the Calvinistic model, but certainly with the model we have before us here. So we really want to talk, and I said this in the first paragraph, we really want to talk about your experience. And as a Christian, uh, your experience starts with Jesus Christ. I mean, introduced to him, understanding that it is then my decision. Uh, God has designed me to make a to self-determine the direction of my life, that I make those decisions uh, of who I'm going to trust and how I'm going to do that, that um, I've been granted that authority, that divine right to do that, and that's premised on the image of God, or is the image of God at work. And so the next thing in your experience, once you have surrendered your will to God's will, is that your, your next thing on your experience, right, is... You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you're going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let's make sure we distinguish these. So you're going to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We use that where he takes up residence there, where he is the seal of your inheritance. Now, what does it mean to have a seal? Does that sound temporary or permanent? It's a permanent action. And so some works of the Holy Spirit we talk about are fluctuating. They fluctuate over your Christian life. But there are certain things that once you receive Holy Spirit, God's promise is that that will be a permanent condition. And so we don't have a transitory spirit. We have an indwelling spirit that will indwell us, be our comforter, all the way till we are in Christ's presence. And so that is the promise. So we have several things that are non-transitory. The indwelling um, is a permanent work of the Holy Spirit, right? The regeneration is a permanent work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and But yet there's other things that, that come and go, right? They're transitory based upon the environment you give him in your life. And so to be your seal of your inheritance um, is a permanent work. And, and so we want to distinguish those and really... Um, his presence in your life is evidence that you've surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ. That is the prerequisite. Does Holy Spirit work in people who are not surrendered to him? Yes, what do we call that work? Conviction, right? Because in John 10, it says that uh, when Spirit comes, he'll convict the I'm sorry, not 10, 16. He'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Okay, so he's going to convict not just some, but the world. So he has a ministry to everyone on earth while he's here. So his presence here in the people of the church that are make up the church, the bride of Christ, um, is not just for our benefit. It is also for the benefit of the world that he will convict them of their sin and of God's righteousness and of a judgment um, so that they have an opportunity to respond. So, on a scale, um, is he more often rejected or more often received? Which one? If he convicts the whole world, is he generally received or is he generally rejected? He's rejected. That's the most common response to Holy Spirit is to reject him. Overwhelmingly. Because he convicts everybody of their sin, but we don't find everybody responding. Do, does everybody have a sensation of that? In other words, do they know, or I hate to use the word feel, but that they know that they are sinners um, by Holy Spirit's divine work? Yes. Do they come to that acknowledgement? Yes. Now they have to do something. They either have to address it, uh, and they can do that by searching out, well, what is the truth? How do I deal with this? And be honest searchers. Or they can do some other things. They can ignore it, right? Push it away. Push those thoughts out. How do you do that? You replace them with other things. Okay, that's what entertainment allows you to do. I don't want to think serious thoughts. I just want to sit down here and be entertained to oblivion. And that's what entertainment does. It allows you to do that. Now you don't have, your brain isn't occupied with those really hard things of who am I? What am I here for? What's this God hole in me about? And what do I do with my evil that I carry with me? 
Uh, we also have a way to avoid and neglect that, to reject it, and instead of coping or dealing with that in an honest fashion, that we go out and we uh, do other activities to numb ourselves to it. And the Bible tells us some of those activities, whether it be alcohol and drugs can numb us to it, and uh, other actions of greater sin, just fall, just do more and more sin, uh, to numb ourselves to it to the point that eventually you don't even have a conscience for the Holy Spirit to work with. It's been seared. You, you burned it away. Uh, and so that's a response that's a negative one. So we have lots of negative responses, even among those who give it some thoughtfulness. Not all of those are going to turn to Christ, are they? They're going to turn to other isms that are out there. They're going to deal with it. And so they're going to go to a Catholicism that says, well, you do these religious activities and they get rid of your sin. Uh, or you go to Islam or, or other religions, and religions all give the thoughtful person who thinks, well, I got this evil, i got to get rid of it somehow. Well, if I crawl on my knees from here to Chimayo and I get some of that special dirt, then somehow God will look on favor and it'll undo or at least balance out some of the evil I've done. Okay? When you encounter those kind of people, they're trying to deal with their sin, but it, they're doing it with error. And that's what false religion does. And so um, we're, we, when we get into the category of people who have, who have been uh, approached and convicted of their sin and been thoughtful about it, I should do something about it, and they've explored, well, there's lots of error out there to explore, right? They get caught up into any one of those. And so what I'm communicating, what I want to get across in all this, is that the normal condition that the Holy Spirit operates under is one of rejection by men. And he shares that with someone else, and that's Jesus Christ, right? What does the prophet say? He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Holy Spirit, similarly to Jesus, is normally rejected and is normally grieved. And that is a far, far cry from how other theologians portray him in Scripture. But it is very evident. Um, we're going to talk about lying to him, grieving him, all these things that you can do against him, of quenching him, of... Uh, resisting him, all those are used there in the New Testament in respect to your relationship with the Holy Spirit. You can ignore him, too, even as a believer. And so we're going to find that his, his a normal relationship with man is one of having been rejected, despised by them, uh, and therefore to say that he is irresistible is just a huge, huge fallacy. It is completely inconsistent with so much scripture. Well, what does it require to keep ministering for thousands of years to a people who keep resisting you? Uh, at some point, that is hard work. It requires an extraordinary amount of humility to do that uh, and to continue to do that, even with that as your general expectation. And maybe that's why every time someone turns to Christ and receives him as Savior and submits their will to him, the angels rejoice in heaven and they have a celebration because it's that rare. The normal condition of the Spirit is to be rejected, despised. And he is very acquainted with grief. And so much of what you think about Jesus' earthly ministry can also be spoken of of Holy Spirit's earthly ministry. It is what it is typically like to be Holy Spirit is to be rejected, to be despised, to be ignored. Uh, and then even for those who respond positively, even among them, we have problems, right? Because they're going to quench him, they're going to um, grieve him, and, and not um, walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. And so... 
Um, this requires something of Holy Spirit, and that is that he is God, has all the power, can come in and do extraordinary things in people's lives. Uh, we do not dismiss his power. That is the number one word used for him. And we do not dismiss his workings within the heart and minds of men. And that is while Jesus Christ is the manifestation, the physical manifestation, for he became flesh and dwelt among us. So he, he knows what it's like to be man, though he had no sin. So he experienced those temptations for us. The Spirit had never experienced that. But the Spirit has done something spectacular in that he has, uh, taken a room in your house, in your body. Don't you know that your body is the temple, the Holy Spirit, which is in you and you have of God, and you are not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore you should glorify God in your body, which is God's, as well as in your spirit. And so he has taken up residence, but that residence isn't a forced one. He is not an intruder by force, is he? Is he? No. Okay, now notice I said he took up a room in your house. Right? He's a lodger. He takes up one room. He takes up every room you let him into. Okay? And so if I have a lodger in my house, I have a room that's their room. And... and, and and I have a lodger in my house, so I have Elizabeth in my house, and so that is, she has two rooms, and access to the restroom, and that's her room. Now, does that mean she doesn't have access to other parts of my house? Well, to the degree that I allow her access, right? Because it's my house. And so certainly I expect her to come out, and, and she can join us anytime in the living room, uh, and she can join us well, any time in the dining room, the best times are when there's food on the table. It's the best time to join us then. And in the kitchen and things like that. Um, I don't know that she's, well, she can't really go down the stairs, but um, it's really up to me to the extent that she has access to the rest. Well, the same is with the Holy Spirit. Not only does his presence in your life, your choice, but the extent of his access in your life is your choice. And that necessitates that he will not override your divine authority, divinely granted authority over yourself. The Holy Spirit will not do that in the believer, just as he doesn't do it in the unbeliever and just comes in and unilaterally says, here's what I'm going to do with you. You know, all he does is come in from the external to the unbeliever and convicts. I say that's external, but that's in my mind and that's in my heart. Yes, that is the realm that he works in, the spiritual realm. Um, but he doesn't do it as a resident. He does it as someone from the outside looking into your heart, looking into your mind and working there to convict you. But once you receive Christ your Savior, now he's resident in, within us. Um, but again, he's a lodger there that is there by our permission to the extent that we allow him access to the rest of who we are. And that's why it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is the Spirit filling your house, or does he just have one room in your house? If you've accepted Christ your Savior, you've at least given him one room. He is a lodger there now. Praise the Lord. You know, that, that doesn't happen very often. Okay, that's exciting. Uh, the real question, the challenge of the Christian walk is, how much of my house do I let the Holy Spirit into, or am I kind of squeezing into his space and pushing him into a closet? Okay? Does he start being pushed into a closet? Now, I want back some of the area I already surrendered to you, but I'm going to push you back. And can you do that? Well, if the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, I say, well, can't he just override my will? Again, he can 
in terms of power, but not in terms of permission. Because God has made us in his image, which is what we just studied, um, God respects his own promises, doesn't he? Otherwise, he's a liar, and he can't be, prom- can't be trusted for anything. So God respects that, and God the Spirit is going to respect that as much as God the Son is God the Father. Because all three of them were there to give it to you. Remember that? Let us make man in our image. So it wasn't just the Father lending you his image. It was the Son lending you his image. It was the Spirit lending you his image. And therefore, all three of them will respect that because they have set the parameters for it. It required all of the Godhead to humble themselves and to create by holding back a portion of of their uh, power and authority to grant man dominion and authority on earth and self-determination. And so we come to Holy Spirit, we're going to see hopefully some things that we're uh, more familiar with. Now, very quickly, I just want to, I talk about in the chapter, there's two, Uh, the irresistible work is necessitated by both Calvinistic doctrine and Pentecostal doctrine. And I talk about that in the chapter a little bit, and it's worth me addressing as, as, the, as, as we transition to this new study, which I think will, will be finished next week. Like I said, I think this is going to be a real quick, unless you have a lot of questions. It probably could go on a lot longer because this is your Christian walk. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is your Christian walk until Christ comes back, right? We probably should spend a lot of time on it. Um, But in terms of the study of humility, it's pretty cut and dry, I think, and most of us recognize it. Um, There are two... er We talk about Calvinism, and then we want to talk about uh, Pentecostalism because both of them necessitate the Holy Spirit overriding your will. Right? So for the Calvinists, that the Holy Spirit's going to come in and do the independent, unilateral work of regenerating you. And then a weird thing happens. You have to get saved. Okay? Because he only regenerates the elect. He doesn't do that for anyone else. So he makes you a new person. I don't know why you need Jesus if the Holy Spirit can unilaterally make you a new person. Um, most thoughtful cows will say, well, he has that power based upon the sacrifice of Jesus that, get, that applied in heaven, the, the shed blood applied in heaven, and therefore that's why he was commissioned to come down here, and now based upon the power of the blood, he comes in and regenerates the elect. That that's the initiation of your salvation is regeneration, not conviction. And so once you're regenerated, now you have to get saved. That will be the 100% outcome of Holy Spirit coming in and make you a new person. Because just as in the Calvinist model, if you're a sinner, you can't do anything but sin, right? If you're regenerated, you can't do anything but believe. But is that your experience? Any of you find Christians that don't believe things? That have problems trusting Jesus, trusting God, following his word, obeying his word? And so the question is, if he's irresistible and and you cannot say no to his regenerative work, and therefore you cannot say no to salvific work, how is it possible now, as a Christian, to say no to his guiding work? How is that even possible? It doesn't even make sense. So over here, where I'm not surrendered to God, you can do all this work in me unilaterally. I don't need to even make a choice because you're going to do the work whether I want it or not. You're going to be an invader, not a guest. (laughs) Okay? You're going to invade my life instead of waiting to be invited in. Okay? And... Um, so, you know, Holy Spirit comes with, with like the SWAT team, you know, and bashes you in, and now he's, he's all over your house because he's the SWAT team. No, Holy Spirit 
what does Jesus say? I stand at the door and knock. If you open, I'll enter. That's a guest. All right? So, but for the Calvinist model, once you get saved, now all these other pastors apply to you. My question is, why? Why do I need them? You've already overridden my will. My will isn't a factor in my salvation. Why is my will suddenly a factor in my Christian life? That is, why now am I given all these commands? I mean, the whole New Testament is full of instructions for us to walk with God, right? How to be a Christian. Preponderance of the, the, the overwhelming majority of the New Testament um, is not an invitation to accept Christ. It's a how to walk with Christ, right? Um, the Gospels are, are pretty much the invitation to come to Christ but even within there, we have a lot of instruction for the disciples, to the apostles predominantly. Uh, but we come to the epistles, and, and we recognize that this is really speaking only to Christians. They're written to churches, and all that information is for us not to get saved, but to how to be saved, how to be a saved person, how to live saved. Why do we have to have all that instruction? If Holy Spirit comes in and unilaterally initiates it, when I am not submitted to him. I am not receptive to him. He just comes in and pfft, you're regenerated. Bam. How is it that I struggle with Christian living? Why isn't he irresistible when I am his child? Why can't he just make me walk the walk? If he made me into the child unilaterally, why can't he unilaterally make me righteous in my experience, in my walk, in my sanctification? Why all this instruction for me, commands for me to deal with my mind, my, my relationships, all these different things? Well, the only, you know, it doesn't make any sense unless we have the Holy Spirit not coming in unless he's invited in and only going as far into your house as you invite him into your house. If he only gets in the front door, and this happens a lot, if he only gets in the front door and we don't even close the door, is he really a lodger? Okay, he's not a lodger, he's just a visitor. He's, a, he's really not a lodging guest, he's a, he's a visitor. And I, and I see people that will open the door and, and they kind of, and, and Hebrews talks about they have tasted of the heavenly gift, right? They've had a little taste of that, but they never let him come. They never closed the door behind him and invited him in in any kind of permanent way. And so they had this working, and then they said, well, thanks for visiting, and out the door you go, and I'll, I'll stay in control of my own life. I won't surrender it. And so in that condition is a very dangerous one, according to the book of Hebrews, to have tasted that and then to spit him out. To invite him into your, across your threshold, and, but not into your uh, inner chambers and to take residence and therefore just let him, to then have him um, exit your life is a dangerous condition. And so we see that that is inconsistent in Calvinism and the surrendered Christian, if the Holy Spirit's irresistible, then any sin I commit is his fault. Why? If his work is irresistible, then every sin I commit is his fault. Correct? If he is irresistible, Every sin I commit is his fault, isn't it? Because he didn't guide me to do righteousness. The only way that our sin is ours is if we choose it. If God is choosing your path and you can't resist him, you can't say no to him, you have to do what he says, you don't have a will or the authority to exercise that will, then ultimately God becomes responsible for sin. 
not because he just he planned it, but because he is currently causing it. And this is the, the, the clear position of Calvinism, especially your four and five point in hyper-Calvinists, especially them, your, your decretal Calvinists, certainly, because they say that God decreed every little thing that happened that has happened. So whatever is, is his will. Well, that's not what God's word teaches, is it? So Holy Spirit is the catalyst, but is he resistible or irresistible? That is the challenge. And uh, humility resolves that immediately because Holy Spirit says, I'll come in, I'll convict you, and you can respond to that conviction in all these other ways that are the norm to reject me, and I won't come in. I'll knock, though. That's the knock. The conviction is a knock. He hasn't entered. He's on the outside working. I'll knock. We open up, and he says, I'll come in. And so we invite Christ into our life. And, and I used to really say, well, that's really a, you know, is Jesus in your heart kind of thing. You know, if you ask Jesus into your heart, and you think there's a little tiny Jesus in your heart, when you're surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ, you're really the one you're inviting into your heart is Holy Spirit. He is the one that will regenerate and, and take up residence in you but only at your permission and only to the degree you let him. So that's the Calvinist situation. And we're going to address that a little bit as you have an opportunity to read that. For the charismatic position, what do they share? Well, if the Holy Spirit is really filling you, what's the proof? Huh? What do you mean by change of action? All right, now, all right, so that's tongues, all right? So here's the proof that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have to speak in tongues. What do they mean by that? They don't mean that. That's not what they mean by tongues. It's incoherent babbling that they themselves don't understand, that no one understands, no one in their hearing understands. It's just a bunch of syllables. Now, in biblical times, in the Acts 2 event, um, in the Pentecost event that was replicated in other places, uh, for the benefit of them, it was was one of the sign gifts that they would speak in other languages. That is not what is being practiced by Pentecostals today. They go to language school before they send their missionaries to the foreign field. That should bug you to no end. Why do you have to go to language school? And some of them flunk. How can you flunk language school if you have the Holy Spirit in you and he enables you to speak other languages by his power? Um, what they mean by it is that you have, un- you have no control of your mouth. Right? And then now your mouth is going to say things uh, that are not coming from your intelligence. They are coming from the Spirit, okay? Yeah, we'll get into some of that when we get into the demons and Satan chapter. Okay, so um, that's their contention. What, what other evidences do they have of Holy Spirit in you? Oh, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. You had something. Um, but that's, that's usually reserved for us. Special class. I mean, for everyone. How do you know that, er, that that any and every person can be filled with the Holy Spirit? What's the evidence in there? Have you ever watched them? Have you ever gone to any of their services and watched them? All right. Um, ever heard of the Holy Rollers? That's a really old term. Um, that's some of our old-timers generation. They're called Holy Roller Churches. Right? What do they do? Well, they get all worked up, and then they're rolling around on the floor. That was their, that was what they're known for, right? Is that they would just have uncontrollable, they couldn't control their physical bodies, and they'd literally be rolling 
around on the floor. And that's why they were called the Holy Rollers. Um, that was replaced by some other activity and some other activity. And there's always a new movement. But every one of those movements focuses on what? Outward signs that you have no control over. How many of you heard of the Laughing Revival? Yeah. Um, that was a big thing in the Pentecostal churches. And that some guy up in Canada or something uh, decided this was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. When he put his hands on you and you got the Spirit from him, you couldn't stop laughing. It was called the Laughing Revival. You had no control. You just had... <laughs> you just couldn't control it. Okay? That is the word for the Pentecostal movement is no control. You having no control is evidence that the Holy Spirit is controlling you. Now let me ask you something. Uh, when Jesus Christ cast out the Spirit out of the one guy that was running around naked in the tombs, in the graveyards, what was noteworthy about him? He was seated, calm, and coherent. Remember, they tried tying him up, and he flashed the ropes. He had all this stuff. He was, he's just a wild man. But when Christ casts out the demons, um, he is sit, dressed, coherent, calm, and everyone goes, what happened to him? The demons are gone. And now you can engage him. He has not less control, but more control. When, when the movement calls you to lose self-control, which I'm pretty sure in Galatians is one of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Temperance, self-control, that's the last thing. When someone wants you to lose control, whether it's your language, whether it's your bodily functions of either your... Fall, you know, um, the big thing, Benny, Benny Hinn's big thing was, he comes by you, what happens to you? You know, he just barely even touches, or even if he goes, whoo, what happens to you? They all fall backwards. Oh, like they're fading. They have people walking around behind everybody because they know it's going to happen. And so they, and oh, you know, and, and, and then there's the, the other practice they have of, well, you know, it says, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, being filled with the Holy Spirit is like being drunk. And here's the Holy Spirit, bam! <laughs> and they walk around <laughs> like a drunkard. Okay? What is the basis of all of that practice and teaching is the exact same basis as Calvinistic teaching, which is at the very other far end of the spectrum. It really is in Christianity. I mean, there's going to be hardly farther apart. But in terms of the Holy Spirit, they have the exact same attitude. And that is that you cannot resist the Holy Spirit. That the real evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is that He works unilaterally without your permission and without your uh, cooperation. And that couldn't be farther from the truth of God's Word. And so, oh, you know, if you just, if the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to have no control. And I'm like, pretty soon they're going to be a urinating revival, right? Holy Spirit comes on you, you can't hold your, your water, right? Why not? I mean, let's just add every bodily function there is. Because, you know, you want the Holy Spirit in every part of your body. So if it makes you laugh, if it, you can't walk, you got to roll around, you act like you're drunk, you fall backwards. Um, it goes on and on. You can't control what you say. And by the way, what was going on in Pentecost? They preached the word and everyone heard it in their own language. It doesn't say they didn't know what they preached. They preached the word and from the brain to here, it came out in everyone's language. It did not disconnect the brain and insert spirit. They preached the word, and it came out in languages that were known to the audience, but not to the speaker. But it doesn't mean he didn't know what he was saying, because he knew he was preaching God's word. So, um, 
we have two extremes of theology all premised on the fact that Holy Spirit works unilaterally. That is, He works without your permission and He works without your cooperation. That's the premise of both of their doctrines and practices. And so this becomes a really important study uh, to address both of those. Well, why am I not over here um, in this stoic kind of, um, you know, we're little robots of God, um, all the way over here to a very emotive, they're actually two sides of the same coin theologically of, well, when Holy Spirit's there, um, none of you is there. And it doesn't work because it's not biblical and it violates so many principles of God in our life. So we're going to be looking at those, so please read through that. Um, please check. I found one typo reading it before church tonight because I this is the first time I've seen it on paper. And so I found one typo. Please find those comments, questions, uh, things that come in your mind, things that say, well, what about this? Um, those are very valuable to me. I know most of you aren't turning those into me, um, but they are very valuable to me uh, to help me. I, I like to research and to resolve those things. This whole work is about resolving problems and questions that we don't do enough of. Um, we just say we're not that, but we don't say why and how and what we are. So this is a resolution work to resolve these issues through this. And, and I found so much consistency through this, just adding this concept of self-sovereignty. Okay, So please do that and help me out with this uh, as we go through and teach this. Okay, Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your love for us. And thank you for your willingness to be despised and be rejected, that we might have an opportunity to receive you. We know that that's really our only hope, is for you to come and knock at the door of our hearts. And Lord, I pray you might continue to do that for any of our number who do not know you, Savior and Lord. You might continue to knock and continue to convict. And Lord, we um, do pray that we might be responsive, not only at granting you entrance into our lives, but granting you more of our lives. And Lord, we pray as we study this, we might see the extent of our responsibility in relating to you and your spirit. And we thank you so much for all that he does for us, and we marvel at the extent of his work and uh, the benefits that he provides for us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.